called me on Friday to tell me that he'd changed the name of the series. When he asked me to speak, the title of the series was Enemies of Christ. And I wondered why he asked me to lead off. And he called, called me back on Friday to say that he changed it and that the series title was Truthing in Love. And I like that. I thought about it. He's coined a verb there, you notice. It's common these days. If you go to a hospital now, instead of a delivery room, they've got a birthing room. And I predict if Dave Maddox has his way with this thing, when you come back as alumni, you'll find that instead of a library, the Master's College will have a truthing center someday. We want to talk about truthing in love. The reason I like that expression, even though it coins a verb, is that it puts the emphasis where Scripture puts the emphasis. We're supposed to speak the truth in love. And the imperative there is speak the truth. Too often we get concerned about being loving that we forget to speak the truth. And as we've heard this morning, it's possible to communicate truth without a word. We know that even from Scripture. And yet, what we also know from Scripture is that it is the word where the power lies. It is the Word of God that contains the truth. And if we're going to speak the truth at all, it's the Word of God that we have to be familiar with. And I want to look at a passage this morning that speaks about Christian unity. Turn to John 17, if you will. Now you may say, what does unity have to do with truthing and love? And my response is, it's the whole thing. You have to understand both the positive and the negative aspects of unity to really know what Jesus was calling for when he called us to be one with one another and when Scripture calls us to speak the truth in love. And in John 17, we can't look at the whole chapter, obviously. I want to, I want to call your attention especially to verses 20 through 26. These verses are the concluding section of the longest of all the recorded prayers of Christ. This is his high priestly prayer. This is the night of his betrayal. This took place after he left the upper room, before he got to the Garden of Gethsemane. Somewhere along the way, he stopped. And Scripture says he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he prayed. And this is his prayer. And obviously, we can't go through the whole chapter. So I want to focus on just this closing section. But before I do that, let me see if we can establish the context by taking a kind of wide-angle look at this prayer. Let me give you a three-point outline that gives you the whole summary of the whole prayer. First, Jesus begins by praying for God's glory, verses 1 through 5. This is in perfect accord with the pattern that he himself outlined for us when he gave us the Lord's Prayer. We start with a recognition of God's glory. That always precedes any personal petitions we might have. And it was that way even in the prayers of Christ. So first he prayed for God's glory. Second, in verses 6 through 19, he prays for his disciples. He prays, look at this, verses 6 through 9, he prays about their knowledge of the Word. He prays about their perseverance, verses 10 through 12. He prays that they'll be filled with joy, verse 13. He prays for divine protection, verses 14 through 15. He prays that they'll be sanctified or made holy, verses 16 through 17, also verse 19. And in verse 18, he prays for their missionary work. 
Then finally, in verse 20, he turns his attention beyond the disciples and he prays for the rest of us, you and me. He says this in verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That prayer embraces all believers of all time. It gathers up every request that Jesus made on behalf of his disciples, and it applies all those requests to you and to me. So let's pay close attention to this closing section of John 17. Jesus is praying for us. And after the words of verse 20, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but also those whom, who believe in me through their word. After he's included us in this prayer, from that point on, this prayer has one theme and one theme only. And that theme is Christian unity. He's praying for unity. This is what he's praying for. Look at it closely. He prays, I'll begin at verse 21. He prays, that they may all be one. Even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me, and the glory which thou hast given me I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that thou didst send me and didst love them even as thou didst love me. Father, I desire that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou didst love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known thee, yet I have known thee, and these have known that thou didst sent me, and I have made thy name known to them, and will make it known that the love wherewith thou didst send me may be in them, and I in them. You see the theme of unity running through that whole prayer? The fact that so much of Jesus' high priestly prayer is devoted to praying for unity makes this subject of unity extremely important. If Christian unity was such a high priority for Christ, if this is what he was thinking about on the eve of his crucifixion, just before he went in the garden and prayed in agony, this is what was on his mind then it certainly should be one of the primary concerns of every Christian. Now look at the text. Notice that Jesus sees unity as the key to persuading the world of the truth of the gospel. Verse 21, he prays that they may be one, even even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. That's the purpose. He's praying for unity so that the world might have this testimony. And it's a testimony to the union and the unity in the Godhead. So it's a significant testimony. Look at verse 23. That they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that thou didst send me. And those verses perfectly echo the thought of John 13, verse 35, where Jesus told the disciples this. He said, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, this is an amazing thought. Think about this. Our unity, our love for one another, is the thing that Jesus prayed would convince the world of the truth of the gospel. 
He could have prayed that the disciples would have power to work great miracles or that they'd be able to call down fire from heaven or something like that. That would have made sense. I would have enjoyed that. And wouldn't signs and wonders like that be really powerful to convince unbelievers of the truth of the gospel? Don't you wish we could be like Elijah and just call down fire from heaven and destroy the enemies of Christ? But that isn't the means God shows. He wants our love and our unity with one another to be the most powerful proof of the gospel to the world. That's what Jesus is praying for. And that makes unity among Christians and love for one another one of the most sacred obligations that we're ever charged with in Scripture. This is a high and holy duty. Sin that breaks the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is not merely a sin against a brother. It's a sin against a watching world. And it's a sin against Christ himself because he prayed for that unity. So this means that maintaining our unity is at the very heart of our testimony to the world. In 1 Corinthians 8, the Apostle Paul said, he told the Corinthians that it is better to offend an unbeliever by refusing to eat what he offers than it is to cause offense to a brother with a weak conscience. Why is that? Because it's a better testimony to the unbeliever that you show love and deference to your brother. And so it's better to avoid offending the weaker brother than it is the non-Christian. So if you're in a situation where you're faced with a choice of either offending an unbeliever or offending a weak Christian, offend the unbeliever. Your love for your brother is a better testimony to that unbeliever than if you avoided offense to him. That's what the Apostle Paul was saying. So this is a very crucial subject. And in no way do I want to diminish the importance of the unity that Jesus is praying for. But there's another side to it as well. Unfortunately, this prayer for unity in John 17 is often misunderstood and misapplied. And this whole passage has been hijacked in our time by people whose motives are for ecumenical unity. And I want to be very clear at the outset. Ecumenical unity is not what Jesus is praying for here. This is not a mandate to unite every group and every belief that is called Christian. It's absolutely vital that we see that. Because the call for ecumenical unity is one of the most influential attacks on the gospel today. And John 17 is a favorite passage for those who appeal for this kind of broad ecumenical unity. The document that's titled Evangelicals and Catholics Together appeals to this very passage. It goes so far as to suggest that the division between Protestants and Roman Catholics is a grievous sin against the unity that Christ prayed for in John 17. And it cites this passage. In effect, the document says that the whole Protestant Reformation was a sin against the prayer of Christ in John 17. Now that view is gaining popularity quickly. Keith Fournier, who's a former evangelical who converted to Roman Catholicism, quotes this passage, the very passage I read earlier, John 17, verses 20 through 23, and then he says this. He writes this in his book. Today, 
he says, the body of Christ is not one. It is divided. Too many of us fight over theology. We revel in our doctrinal purity, our ecclesiastical perfection. Then we look around us and wonder why the world has gone on without us, why it has stopped listening to us and begun looking elsewhere for answers. Fournier says, what will lead us out of our stupor? Now notice carefully how he sets up his argument so that theology becomes the enemy of unity. That's basically his thesis. Sound doctrine is at odds with unity and love. And he sees doctrinal purity as altogether incompatible with the unity of the body of Christ. Either, in his view, you can either have doctrinal purity or you can have unity, but you can't have both. And unfortunately, that's no longer a minority opinion. I believe it perfectly reflects the prevailing mood of our age. You'll hear this a lot. You see it in movements like the Catholic Evangelical Accord. You'll see it in the broad ecumenical sweep of groups like Promise Keepers, similar organizations. And you'll see it in the ecumenical inclusiveness of the charismatic movement. All those kinds of things are pushing evangelicalism more and more towards the position that doctrine is the enemy of unity, that truth is the enemy of love, and that denominations are somehow incompatible with unity in the body of Christ. And I believe the growing popularity of this kind of thinking represents the greatest threat to the church today. We've misunderstood what true unity is. We're calling for the wrong kind of unity. So let's, let's, what I want to do now is take a critical look at that mindset by examining these three propositions that are at the heart of it. I'm going to ask three questions, and we're going to go to Scripture and see if we can get these answered. And the first is, do denominations divide the body of Christ? The second is, is truth the enemy of love? And the third is, is doctrine incompatible with unity? Let's just look at those three questions one at a time. First, do denominations divide the body of Christ? Are denominations, do they make solidarity in the faith impossible? And let's just admit at the beginning that this is not a question we can easily sweep aside. It's a hard question. Paul rebuked the Corinthians for having a sectarian spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, he wrote this. Each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Paul asks, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And then in chapter 3, he adds this. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Paul was saying that schism, and particularly the kind of schism that attaches itself to personalities, a party spirit is sometimes called, this is a demonic sin. It's so much so that divisive people are not to be tolerated in the church. In a normal discipline situation, 
what do we do? The instructions are spelled out in Matthew 18. There are four stages you go through in calling someone to repentance. But when you have someone who is schismatic, someone who's sowing division, someone who's setting the brethren at odds with each other, Paul says it's a whole different situation. And he wrote this in Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. He said, Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning, being self-condemned. He essentially said, you can skip one of the steps of church discipline if the problem is factiousness, because that's such a serious, demonic kind of sin. So schism is serious. And it's fair to ask, then, if, it's, if this is such a serious sin, why are there so many denominations? Why, after all, is it necessary to have Presbyterians, Methodists, Mennonites, Episcopalians, Anglicans, Brethren, the Church of Christ, Church of the Nazarene, Congregationalists, Dutch Reform, Christian Reform, Protestant Reform, Baptist, Anabaptist, Reformed Baptist, Independent Baptist, American Baptists, Southern Baptists, Free Will Baptists, General Baptists, Regular Baptists, Particular Baptists, and my favorite, the Strict and Particular Baptists. And I saw one sign on an Arkansas church that advertised this. This was the church on their billboard out in front, people driving by. The strict and particular reforming Baptist, non-instrumental, closed communion, King James Text Community Church. Is all that really necessary? I mean, in the words of Rodney King... Can't we all just get along? And I haven't even mentioned the broader divisions of Christianity, like the Roman Catholics and Protestants and Eastern Orthodox and Coptic churches. Now, let's be honest. You can hardly blame a non-Christian for being nonplussed by the variety. The pagan from a non-Christian society isn't likely to look at Christendom and say, Behold how they love one another. But on the other hand, those of us who are Christians, who know the Lord, have to understand that Christendom is not the church. People who, there are lots of people who call themselves Christians, who are not true followers of Christ. And there's no reason that we should give Muslims or Hindus or unbelievers the impression that every variety of so-called Christianity is truly Christian. Just because another church or denomination calls itself Christian does not mean that it's part of the body of Christ. This has been true from the very beginning. It was true even in biblical times. Consider the seven churches that Christ wrote epistles to in Revelation 2 and 3. A lot of problems in those churches. And most of them, Jesus recognized as true churches. But one or two he condemned. And one in particular was totally apostate. Two or three of the others were in danger of apostatizing. And we know from Jesus' warning to the church at Laodicea that it is possible for a church to abandon the truth so entirely 
that Christ spews them out of his mouth. He rejects them. They're not a true church. So the sign on the front of the church saying Christian doesn't mean this is a group that's part of the body of Christ. Also, we as individual believers need to realize that the primary sphere of unity that we are supposed to pursue is unity within the local body. People start talking about unity on broad levels, and it kind of takes the responsibility off our shoulders. But the unity that I'm called to for me as a Christian, what is my personal responsibility is to seek unity among the saints with whom I fellowship. That's a far more pressing duty than the unity of all the Christian groups worldwide. And all the appeals for unity in Scripture underscore this. When Paul urged the Ephesians to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in Ephesians 4.3, he had in mind primarily the Ephesian church itself, unity there in the local body. And this is where unity becomes an extremely practical matter, isn't it? It's sheer hypocrisy to talk about mass movement unity, ecumenical prayer gatherings, citywide cooperative evangelistic crusades and things like that, if at the same time you're working against unity in the local fellowship. And I know people like that. You do too. People who complain against their own local church's leadership and then they bemoan the fact that the body of Christ worldwide is so divided. That's the rankest kind of hypocrisy. And it ignores the unity that we're called to, which is a unity right here in this very context. But let's not get too far away from denominations. How how can we respond? How should we respond to the fact that there are so many thousands of different denominations? Well, first let me suggest that the existence, the mere existence of denominations is not necessarily a breach of the unity that Christ prayed for. When Jesus prays that they may all be one, he's describing a spiritual unity, not an organizational unity. Look at verse 11. We're still in John 17. Jesus prays that they may be one even as we are. That describes a spiritual union. Look at verse 21. That they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they may also be in us. Again, that's a spiritual unity, not an organizational thing. All Christians, all true Christians, are in Christ. Therefore, they are all one with the Father, and one with each other as well. Look at the end of verse 22, and just on into the verse 23. He says that they may be one... Just as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfected in unity. So the basis of this kind of unity is not a denominational affiliation. It is our position in Christ. That's what Christ was praying for. And that prayer is perfectly answered. So denominations in and of themselves are no obstacle to true Christian unity. There's nothing wrong with holding denominational convictions. And in fact, if we polled the room here, I'm sure we'd find people from all sorts of denominations. And yet, we enjoy a unique kind of unity, don't we? There's nothing wrong 
with having denominational convictions. What's wrong is a sectarian attitude. And sectarianism is when you purposely use your denominational convictions to promote strife among people who are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what's wrong. That's what destroys unity. Unity doesn't mean that we have to agree up front to every point of truth. But unity also doesn't mean that we should ignore the issue of truth altogether. And this brings us to the second question I want us to consider. Is truth the enemy of love? Is truth incompatible with love? There are a lot of people today who advocate a kind of unity that ignores truth altogether. In fact, they see truth as the enemy of love. We've now, and let's be honest, there is a problem here too. There is a problem in going overboard the other direction. We've all known people and ministries sometimes who, who seem obsessed with exposing the errors of others. And they wield the truth like a club. And they don't show much love in the process. And my prayer is that we're never guilty of that. If we're going to speak the truth, we have to speak it in love. But in love, we must also speak the truth. And, and love is the very essence of the unity that Christ prays for in John 17. Look at verse 26 where he prays, That the love wherewith thou didst love me may be in them and I in them. So he's saying that he's praying for a unity that is based on love. And it's based on the same kind of love that the Father has for the Son. This is the highest and holiest kind of love. But, as we've seen, true love cannot be divorced from truth. It is utterly impossible to make a dichotomy, any kind of dichotomy, between truth and love. They are part and parcel of one another. We cannot see love as the adversary of truth, and we can't look at truth as the enemy of genuine love. You can't set love in opposition to truth and vice versa. In 1 Corinthians 13.6, the chapter where the Apostle Paul describes love, 1 Corinthians 13, he says this about love, that it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. So truth is at the very heart of genuine love. It's part of the character of love. And in fact, truth is so essential to the character of true love that if you take away love's concern for the truth, then it really isn't love anymore. It's just an empty sentiment. Warren Wiersbe says this. He says, truth without love is brutality. But love without truth is hypocrisy. Now keep your finger in John 17 and turn with me over to the little epistle of 2 John. This is really crucial to our theme of truthing in love. This is a very short epistle and highlights better than any passage of Scripture I know the close relationship between truth and love. 2 John. Now notice how many times the Apostle ties these two concepts together. So already in verse 1. He says, Whom I love in the truth. Verse 2. Whom I love for the truth's sake. Verse 3, the last few words, in love and truth. And all through this epistle, you see these concepts, these twin concepts, truth and love, inextricably linked together. In fact, you could divide 
if you wanted to outline this passage, this, this whole chapter, the first half emphasizes love, and the second half emphasizes truth. In the first half of the epistle, it culminates with verses 5 and 6, where John, who, remember, is the apostle of love, writes this. He says, And now I ask you, lady, not as writing to you a new commandment, but the one which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. You see there? He says the big commandment is love one another. And then when he defines love, he defines it as walking in truth. And this is the commandment, which you have heard from the beginning, that you should walk in this, in it. He's urging her to follow after love. But he defines love in a way that it must have regard to the truth. Now, in the second half of the epistle, he gives equal emphasis to the principle of truth. And he's saying here that love does not mean that this woman is indiscriminately supposed to offer every professing believer her favor and her cooperation. In fact, he forbids her to do that. See, in the early church, there were these people who called themselves Christians, but who were secretly enemies of the truth. We have people like that today. And how were they to be identified? He tells her here. They're to be identified because of the errors in their doctrine. Look at verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. They call himself a Christian, but he's a deceiver and he's an antichrist. In verse 9, he says, such people do not have God. Now, how did the Apostle John suggest that these people should be treated? Look at verses 10 and 11. He tells this woman very explicitly, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, the teaching of truth that he's given her, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. I find this fascinating. Despite the fact that of, of everything that is a dilemma for all of us. Because in my first point, I noted that unity does not require us to believe to agree on every point and every particular. There are denominational distinctives that are legitimate. We don't have to agree on every point and every particular. That's not the kind of unity that we're called to. We can't insist that everybody who comes along must see eye to eye with us on every single point of doctrine. Because none of us understands every point of doctrine. If we did, we'd have apostolic authority. So here's the problem. How do we know which doctrines are absolutely essential to Christianity? How do we identify the points of faith that are so vital that accepting them makes someone a brother or sister in Christ and rejecting them makes that person a deceiver and an antichrist? How do we know the difference? And the answer is, Scripture tells us. Scripture tells us, I think, very plainly. And let me give you two rules of thumb. Because we're running out of time. I'm limited to two. And then if you want to study this more in depth, I would commend you to uh, chapter 4 in John MacArthur's latest book, Reckless Faith, where he grapples with this very issue and goes into it in far more depth than I'm going to be able to here. But I want to give you these two principles. First, if Scripture makes a truth essential to saving faith, 
then that's a fundamental doctrine. If Scripture makes a truth essential to saving faith, that's a fundamental doctrine. If eternal life depends on a doctrine, then if you deny that truth, that would place you outside the brotherhood of the true faith, right? Simple enough. For example, right here in chapter in John 17, verse 3, Jesus says this, This is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So he's saying, in the context of his prayer here, that the knowledge of the true God and his Son is fundamental to true Christianity. And since Scripture tells us repeatedly that Jesus is God incarnate, according to John 1.14, the Word became, who is God became flesh and dwelt among us, then we can put all that together and realize that Jesus' deity is a fundamental doctrine of Christianity. Anyone who denies the deity of Christ is not a true Christian. But that's precisely what we saw the Apostle John saying back in in 2 John, the passages I read, verses 7 and 9, he says, if anybody comes to you and, and without the doctrine of Christ, if he corrupts the doctrine of Christ, and the specific problem that John was writing to address had to do with those who were denying the incarnation of the Son of God, he says, don't receive those people. They're not true Christians. So the deity of Christ would qualify as an essential, fundamental doctrine. We are not permitted to seek unity with people who deny it. Romans 4, verses 4 and 5, make justification by faith a doctrine that is also fundamental to Christianity. These verses say this, Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. That means that if you're working to earn favor with God, you'll get paid a wage according to your works. And since your works are sin, the wages of sin is death, a person who's working to earn favor with God is not a true Christian. But for the one who does not work, but believes in him that justifies the ungodly, that is, if you are trusting God alone, because you know that he justifies the ungodly through faith alone, then, Scripture says, your faith is reckoned as righteousness. You are a true Christian. You're justified. So the doctrine of justification by faith is another doctrine that separates true Christians from those who are deceived. And it's important to protect these distinctives. The bodily resurrection of Christ would be another one, because Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith is vain. In fact, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul lists a whole bunch of doctrines that are, he says, are of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised again the third day according to the Scriptures. That passage embraces the entire atoning work of Christ. So that means that all of these would be essential doctrines to Christianity. The deity of Christ, justification by faith, Christ's substitutionary atonement, and the entire gospel message. Anyone who denies any of these essential doctrines is not a true Christian. And according to 2 John, we are not to seek unity with such people. Second rule of thumb. 
If Scripture forbids us to deny a truth under the threat of condemnation, then that truth is fundamental. If Scripture forbids us and threatens us with condemnation for denying a certain truth, we can know that that truth is fundamental. In the first few verses of 1 John, John makes three statements about sin. Remember, he says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So that means that people who deny their own sin are not true Christians. The truth isn't in them. And since they're not true Christians, we are forbidden to seek unity with them. Twice in Galatians chapter 1, Paul pronounces anathema on those who deny that we're justified by faith apart from works. So again, that underscores what we've already seen, that justification by faith alone is a fundamental doctrine of Christianity. And that means we're forbidden to seek unity or any kind of spiritual fellowship with people who deny the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, all of this places a very high premium on sound doctrine in determining who's genuine. And we need to know how to distinguish genuine believers from the phonies because we're commanded to pursue unity with the brethren and we're commanded to shun false believers, false Christians, people who profess to be believers. So Jesus' prayer for unity in John 17 hinges on our understanding of sound doctrine. And so that brings us to the final question, and I'll cover this real quickly. Is doctrine at odds with unity? Is doctrine incompatible with unity? We've seen that doctrine is the issue that Scripture says divides true brethren from those that we're supposed to treat as unbelievers and antichrists. I realize that sounds harsh to many people. I know it tends to ruffle feathers. I know it's not in accord with the spirit of our age. But that is, after all, exactly what Scripture is teaching us. Doctrine is the ultimate issue between true Christianity and the religion of Antichrist. Doctrine. A man who I corresponded with on some of these issues wrote me a letter in, in which he said this. He said, I believe the first and seminal heresy is the insistence on doctrinal purity as a test of true faith in Christ. He says, I strongly believe that the unity of the church is far too important to relinquish on grounds of doctrinal disputes. He also said he thinks it's a sin against Christ's prayer in John 17 to critique other people's doctrine. That was his perspective. Now think with me for a moment about that. Do you see how that kind of thinking plays right into the strategies of the devil? He loves to disguise himself, Scripture tells us, as an angel of light. He likes to disguise his agents as angels of light and bring false doctrine into the church subtly like that. If you've got, if you've got a pen, take notes real quick. I'm just going to give you some Scripture references. This is Satan's strategy. It's revealed to us in these verses. Galatians 2.4. Galatians 2.4, Jude verse 4, Matthew 13.25, Ephesians 4.14. Those verses tell us that Satan likes to creep in undetected 
He likes to spread his evil teaching and subvert the truth secretly. You could add Acts 15.24 to that. And 2 Peter 2.1. And having got his false doctrine into the church, then he cries for tolerance and unity. This is without a doubt one of Satan's favorite ploys because it denigrates truth. And it portrays sound doctrine as incompatible, antithetical with unity. Because Satan hates truth and sound doctrine. But he loves the sort of environment where his lies can be disseminated without being challenged. You see the danger there? And this is the whole point of several epistles in the New Testament, including Jude, Second Peter, and some of the others. And the whole thrust of Scripture confirms this. Well, I'm going to close with one verse. James 3.17, which tells us that the wisdom which is from above is first pure, then peaceable. Think about that. Stand with me and we'll pray.